Mm-hmm. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Let's get started on time. Uh, welcome to Dev 340, or how Amazon.com uses AWS management tools. I apologize for the raspy voice. Uh, my name is Prashant Prahlad. I'm a, a senior manager for product management for some of the services that comprise these management tools. And joining me is Mike. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is Mike Burke. I'm a principal technical program manager at Amazon, and I'm going to be talking about how we use some of the stuff that Prashant has built. Well, the good news is, uh, you know, you, won't, you wouldn't have to hear me for too long because Mike's going to do a bulk of this presentation. Now, as you notice, neither Mike or I work in marketing, uh, but we came up with a very pithy way to remember this talk. It's guardrails, not gates. So if that's something you can remember, you'll, you can reference this talk afterwards. Well, what you can expect from this session is the following. We've used the term management tools uh, fairly pervasively through reInvent. I'll try and define what services uh, comprise these management tools. And really important that you walk away from this talk knowing what your governance philosophy is, and then select the tools from these sets of management tools that meet that philosophy. And the bulk of this talk, as I said, will be around how Amazon.com, which is a big customer of AWS, uh, actually uses these tools and their journey in, in using these tools. And, and you'll also be able to take learnings from this session and implement it yourselves. So uh, when we talk to customers, there are a lot of questions we hear from them. Some of the most common ones when customers are either migrating their workloads into the cloud or scaling their usage on AWS uh, are listed here. The most common one is what should my AWS account structure be? Should I use one per application, one per environment, one per business unit, or one per geo? And then through this talk, we'll try and answer this question. How much governance should I put in place? Should you allow developers to do anything they want within their AWS account, or should you go through approval workflows for uh, any changes made to production resources? And then if you are the person administering these accounts centrally, you are obviously a scaling bottleneck because your AWS usage is typically growing, the number of services that people within your company are growing, and how do you keep up with all of this uh, given, given the number of people working on this kind of stuff? And then uh, finally, how do I have enough metadata to perform forensics and analysis on how people are using the cloud? Now, traditionally, the, the, the way we've approached this is you have governance on one side and you trade off some governance for agility, right? The pace at which you want to deploy and make changes through the DevOps way can actually affect the amount of governance you have put in place. And when you think about governance, just remember these, uh, these six things. They're this define, discover, monitor, manage, report, and respond. So we'll come back to what those things are. Uh, and we trade that off for agility. As, as an example, even customers today go through some sort of approval workflows when a new VM or an instance needs to be provisioned. And that can actually lead to long deployment times. What we believe is that AWS, and specifically the management tools we're going to talk about today, actually help you uh, do both, right? It's, it's a false trade-off. 
And then we look at how that's the case. Now, when we reference management tools for governance, remember we had uh, all those nice uh, definitions of what governance means, or one-word definitions of what governance means. Uh, I wanted to pick the services from the management tools that actually meet those. And I'm, I, I won't go through each of them in detail, but I'll give you a one-line summary of what these services are so you have enough context moving into the talk that Mike's going to do. The first one is CloudFormation. Uh, CloudFormation is a templating language that allows you to provision infrastructure and applications on AWS. Uh, it's templatized, so you get the same set of configurations for resources in different accounts like test, dev, prod, and so on. Service Catalog is sort of an extension of CloudFormation that actually publishes only approved templates for people to use, and that's your sole interface to use AWS. So it gives you governance when an administrator says, these are the templates I want my users to use. Those are the only ones available to them. Uh, some of the other services that help you gain visibility in the cloud, uh, CloudTrail. CloudTrail is an API logging service that pretty much logs who made an API call at what time, to what IP address, and what resources were affected. AWS Config really has two portions. It's one portion monitors the inventory of resources in your account and how they're configured and how they change. And another portion actually automatically checks these configurations through a me mechanism called config rules. And you can define your own rules and best practices to say this change is compliant or non-compliant. Uh, CloudWatch uh, <coughs> is a fairly large service that really has three components, uh, CloudWatch metrics and alarms, which really help you measure things and alarm when uh, things don't meet your requirements. Uh, they have CloudWatch logs. Logs actually collect data from different sources, so you can search and do some advanced analytics on them. And CloudWatch events that allow you to react to changes that happen in the AWS account. Trusted Advisor is a reporting mechanism that helps you get best practices from AWS, and you can run regular reports to see how you're doing against these best practices. And lastly, event, we announced EC2 Systems Manager that allows you to um, manage resources inside the EC2 instance, whether on the AWS cloud or elsewhere. You can use these tools to do things like patch management, maintenance, uh, apply maintenance windows, get an inventory of all the things installed inside your EC2 instance, and run commands to make operational changes without having to use SSH. Now, I'm really hoping, since this is a 340 talk, you know all this. You know all these services, and they'll come in handy, but hopefully this gives you some context. Now, let's get back to what we defined as governance. Uh, we said ability to define, discover, manage, monitor, report, and respond where our governance. So you can actually use these sets of tools to meet those required governance requirements. Again, CloudFormation and Service Catalog help you define infrastructure in the cloud. Uh, EC2 Systems Manager, Config, and CloudTrail give you ability to discover resources that exist and manage them. And Trusted Advisor, along with CloudWatch, help you monitor, respond, and you can even get a report. Now, if, if, if uh, that's a lot to take in, just remember these things. These are Cliff's Notes, and, and for, for folks who are, didn't go to North American uh, universities, this has been the reason why people graduate. Uh, it's, it, it gives you a summary of, of what you need to know. Uh, our management tools help you automate the management, of life management life cycle on AWS, and it helps you scale. You don't have to trade off visibility and control. 
we strive to provide better visibility on our tools than you've ever experienced before. So anytime we are in doubt, we want to provide that information to you. So better visibility is a tenet for us. And then it's really important to pick your governing philosophy and then choose the tools that match that philosophy. And this will make a lot more sense once you hear Mike. Now, a lot of customers use management tools. Uh, it's not, uh, you know, right from enterprises such as Hess to cloud native uh, companies such as Netflix to startups. They use it to actually scale the usage of AWS programmatically. One such customer happens to be Amazon.com, which is comprised of all these companies. And uh, I'd like to hand it over to Mike to tell us more. Thanks, Prashant. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike Burke. I'm the principal technical program manager at Amazon.com. Um, Amazon.com is a shorthand way of talking about all the parts of Amazon which aren't AWS. Um, you look at all this logo cloud. These are my customers. Uh, the program I, I work in is all about broadening and deepening and evolving our use of AWS across Amazon. Um, we use AWS just like any other customer. We have an account team. We have uh, solutions architects that help our engineers out. We have technical account managers. And we, have, uh, we use enterprise support, just like any other large customer. So before we really get into the meat of this talk, I just wanted to take an opportunity, because this week has been a, a busy week at Amazon. Uh, if your hobbies include shopping or reading things on the internet, then you may have heard about Black Friday and Cyber Monday, uh, two very big events at this time of year. Um, the group I work with inside Amazon actually runs a lot of the, the core fleets which support Amazon.com during this time. The, the rendering fleets which support the websites around the world, the traffic management fleet, some of the really hardcore stuff going on. Um, so I just wanted to share a special sneak peek behind the scenes of what goes on during these days. Um, you can imagine it's a really busy time of year, lots of people focused, lots of intensive game days, there's war rooms set up around the globe watching the dashboards, things happening. Uh, so lots of engineers putting in a lot of long hours and a lot of preparation to make things run smoothly. And of course, our leadership team have an important part to play in terms of keeping that professional focus, keeping things running smoothly. So hot off the presses, here's a quick sneak peek of what goes on. Uh, here's our leadership team in action. Uh, uh, for people like me who find the sight of adults in onesies distressing, I apologize, uh, but there it is. Um, there's a zebra at the back, a hairy zebra at the back, who's actually doing a talk at 1 o'clock tomorrow about how Amazon.com processes millions of transactions per second on AWS during these events. So I recommend going and seeing that one. Uh, there's a deeper point here, maybe. Um, the fact that you know, these are the busiest times of year for us. The fact that we're able to actually relax a little bit and have fun while we're processing these millions of transactions per second means you know, we have a lot of confidence and we just have a lot of great experience running these super large workloads on AWS. So dressing up as, as a, it's a rabbit, I think, I'm not sure, but dressing up as a rabbit is a vote of confidence in how good AWS is for our super large scale. All right, enough of the onesies. So just wanted to give some context on how Amazon, how our culture works and how our teams are oriented, because this provides a lot of context into how we actually operate and the sort of governance and change approaches that we take. So you may have read about this two-pizza team concept. This is the idea that any team inside Amazon should not be any larger than can be reasonably fed with two pizzas. Um, unless that pizza has blue cheese and potato, then I guess I'm a one-person team, but anyway. Um, 
single-threaded ownership comes with that. So each of these teams have strong ownership, not just of the code, but the end-to-end -end life cycle. So they own understanding their customers, be they internal or external, writing software, testing software, operating the software. So they carry the pages. It's everything. So you have this really strong central ownership of the code and the systems. And we have lots and lots and lots of these teams. Coupled with that, we have a really strong, what we call bias for action. It's one of our leadership principles. So you know, we recognize the, the power of moving quickly in business. So a lot of how we think and how we approach things is about how do we maximize that speed. Coupled with that is continuous deployment. So this is the notion of each time I commit a change into source code, it runs through the system, out through pipelines and tests, and then pops out in production automatically. Um, we're heavy, heavy users of continuous deployment, as you might expect. Uh, three years ago, back in November 2014, we shared some numbers. Uh, for the trailing 12 months, we did 50 million deployments. Uh, if you actually do the maths on that, that's 1.6 deployments a second. Uh, I'm sure it's only gotten bigger since then. But put together, these cultural elements and the fact that we like to move fast and so many different teams all moving independently, we have huge amounts of change going on. And we couldn't really balance this change happening at that pace plus our ability to govern and control what's going on without leveraging some of the AWS tools, which I'm going to talk about. Uh, it's also important, we're going to talk a little bit about the journey we've been on using AWS up until this point. So obviously, we're not new to the AWS game. We've been using it for a while. Uh, the first talk we gave at reInvent was in 2012. This is my uh, colleague, Laura Gritt. You can find this on uh, YouTube, actually. It's ENT205, drinking our own champagne. It sounds much nicer than eating our own dog food. <laughs> Uh, but we like to move fast. AWS helps us do that. AWS has evolved a lot since 2012. There was 169 feature, uh, feature releases in that year. Last year was 1,017, and I think we've probably exceeded that number just in the last 48 hours by the sound of it. So back in the early days, our initial approach to using AWS looked like this. We had this large shared account. We had lots of VPCs. Well, we had a small number of VPCs, actually. Each of those VPCs are connected to our on-premise network through Direct Connect. So this is a common pattern for customers moving to the cloud. So we set this up early on. Um, it worked really well. It's a very low friction way of getting into the cloud. If, you have, if all you have is software running on legacy hosts in your data centers and you want to get into some of the advantages that EC2 gives you in terms of cost and in terms of being able to forget some of the operations behind replacing things in racks and power supplies and all that, then this is a really quick way to get there. Uh, so this was a a simple approach, but it was really key for us to move quickly back in the early days. Uh, some of those big rendering fleets I spoke about were some of the first workloads we actually moved out there. Um, moving forwards, we actually also made it possible for teams to get their own AWS accounts. So while we have a lot going on in this large shared account, we also made it possible for teams to go and get their own accounts through some internal tools. Turns out that was pretty successful. Uh, today, we've got tens of thousands of those accounts under the Amazon.com umbrella spread across the business. And that's continuing to grow. Uh, fast forward to today. Again, we're using a lot of AWS. Here are some stats from Prime Day. I can't even comprehend what 3.34 trillion DynamoDB requests actually looks like. It's just beyond human comprehension as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but there is a blog post down the bottom there that you can go read to, uh, to find out more about how we do things. So we're all in on AWS, and we're continuing to evolve and grow. So the two approaches I just talked about, I'm going to use an astronomy metaphor for, because I can. Um, 
we have this large shared account model on the left hand side. So this is the, the original approach we took where we put everything into these large accounts um, and then managed everything inside there. So that's kind of like a big sun or a big star. You know, you've got this well-defined boundary around it. You have lots of stuff going on inside there. It's mostly made of hydrogen. I didn't say it was a good metaphor. Um, and then you have on the other side uh, the, the team account model, which is we call that the nebula approach here because nebula is Latin for cloud and it also is kind of what that picture looks like. You've got lots and lots of tiny accounts, smaller accounts, some of them clustered together, some of them bigger than others, but you kind of got this broader fabric of things going on. So we started on the left, we're moving to the right. Uh, why are we going to the right? Well, you talk about our uh, internal organizational architecture and the fact we have lots and lots of small teams. It's a much better fit for that. Um, there's a blast radius concern with a single large shared account. If someone changes something in IAM accidentally, or if they make a change which isn't properly vetted, then there's a huge blast radius concern there. Um, but the bigger challenge for us is around permissions. How do you do fine-grained permissions when everything is inside one account and you potentially have tens of thousands of people all trying to do stuff there? Um, so let's explain that just briefly and how we went through this. So here's Bob. Bob's in this large shared account. He wants to create a database which stores a list of reInvent talks that use astronomy metaphors. I think it's going to be a short list, but that's okay. He's going to use RDS. So he creates an RDS database. Uh, he's happy. He moves on with his life. Meanwhile, Steve down here is doing a tidy up of a test environment, and he's upgrading the database engine on one of his RDS instances. He's also got a team meeting coming up, and he's starting to think about what flavor the pizza is going to be. So he's not concentrating, and he accidentally upgrades the wrong database. Now, lots of things that mean this isn't as big a problem as you might imagine. RDS obviously has a lot of automatic backup and restore capabilities. You can use naming and tagging and other things to give humans clues about what things they should be working with and what they shouldn't. But that really relies on good intentions and really isn't scalable at a very large scale. Um, and if you're an auditor, then you probably have some feelings about this as well. <laughs> It's not great. Everything can uh, be touched by anyone unless you take some extra steps here. So the central, the traditional way of solving this problem is to go get a central team. And they have the keys to the kingdom. And if anyone wants to make a change in this account, they have to go through that team. So that team has a lot of responsibility and a lot of power. Uh, but as more and more people start using AWS, in this case, more and more people are going to come to this team. They're going to become that bottleneck. And it starts to feel like the old world of IT, where you had to go to the central IT team to ask for changes, and there was a queue, and you had to make a case about why your request is more important, et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of runs counter to the whole value proposition of the cloud, which is the company gets to move faster because the individuals in that company, be they engineers, be they analysts, whoever it is, get to move faster through AWS. Uh, I did some quick math on this to look at how this would work for Prime Day. If, we had 14 million configuration changes during Prime Day. If we assume 1% of those are actually initiated by a human instead of a system, and if we assume we have people making these changes and they take five minutes each and they work eight-hour days and they don't stop for lunch, uh, then we only need to hire 1,458 people to support that. So needless to say, that's not an approach we've taken. The first approach we did take was to build a wrapper on top of that central account. And it exposes a set of features which our engineers use to uh, deploy and run software there. So people would use this wrapper. They would authenticate to it. The wrapper would have all the authorization and permissions logic to figure out who's allowed to do what, and it would do it on their behalf. So that got us a very long way. 
but the downside of that you start to hit in is really it's undifferentiated engineering. I mean, why are we spending precious engineering resources building wrappers around other things? Surely we can find a better use for that time. Um, and as soon as you build a wrapper, you're building an abstraction over something, which means you have to build all the knobs and dials that you want to expose of whatever it is that you're wrapping. Given the pace of change of AWS, it gets harder and harder to actually keep that wrapper up to speed with the, the rate of innovation. And so you end up, if you're not careful, with a lowest common denominator approach where you just service like the 80% the of the most popular features and a lot of it goes missing. So there's another approach you can take with a large shared account. And we've done this as well. This is to use uh, resource and tag-based permissions. So what you see on the left-hand side here is an IAM policy which is talking about is giving people permissions or an entity permissions to do whatever they want to RDS resources as long as they're tagged in a particular way. And so you have a, a taxonomy of tags that you come up with, like department or team name or whatever it might be. In this case, it's finance. And so um, you grant roles and permissions to people in the finance team so that they can only edit resources that are tagged with the finance tag. So that's good. That works. Um, but again, there are some sharp corners there at scale which you run into. So first of all, it relies on people using the right tagging system. If someone creates a resource and forgets to tag it, then what do you do? If they apply the wrong tag and now they don't have permissions to actually use that tag, then again, you have this central team who has to be the arbiter of all the, the problems that come up. There's a ticket queue. And again, it's not as big of a problem, but there is still this element of humans getting in the way and slowing things down. Um, so the other approach is you build systems to enforce that tagging for you, and people use a proxy layer to create and manage these resources, and that layer makes sure that the tags are created. Again, you're starting to build shims, and you're starting to get in the way. So this is the sort of process we went through the large shared accounts before we started to really realize that we needed to more aggressively pursue a multi-account model. Um, the real benefits to this, we solved the blast radius issue. So one account, one IAM policy change, huge blast radius, big shared VPCs, big blast radius, lots of small accounts, smaller blast radius. Permissions gets easier. You can give accounts to individual teams, and since that team has full ownership of the resources in that account, they can just have full access to anything in there, and you don't have to get into the business of doing fine-grained resource permissions. Uh, but now you have a different problem, which is governance. So you're giving people access to AWS accounts. You don't have any proxies getting in the way. Uh, they can potentially do anything, which is great. But you know, sometimes someone might use an operating system or a database engine which your company doesn't want to be using. Someone might launch an RDS instance with single AZ tendency, multi-AZ failover. Maybe you don't want that. So we built some early systems to address these challenges uh, before some of the technologies that Prashant talked about came into operation. So I'll talk about what we did first and then what we built subsequently to give us a better solution. So you know, the traditional approach to solving the I don't want bad things to happen is you take away people's permissions to do those things. And you do that through IAM in AWS. So you park the root credentials off to the side in some secure storage. You have a set of IAM roles, um, which are pre-created. And then you have a system which can generate and create those roles into individual accounts based on whatever those permissions are. And the key thing is that those roles can't have the ability to create their own roles, because then you get into the world where people can do whatever they want again. So you need to have this some kind of layer on the top of things. And then people can either create IAM users to do stuff in those accounts, or they can 
authenticate and authorize in through an identity broker. And we built one of these. This is the general pattern for an identity broker. So you have Bob here. Bob wants to do some RDS database stuff. He wants to do it in this account. One, two, three, four, five. Oh, I missed out the five. Anyway, uh, one, two, three, four, three, six, seven. So he uses his internal identity, be it a Kerberos ticket, be it whatever it might be, to authenticate to our internal identity broker. The identity broker understands who that person is, and it has access to a set of permissions rules to determine who has access to do what where. Assuming that checks out with the identity broker, the identity broker can make a privileged call into the AWS account using something called assume role, which is an IAM operation. What that does is it says, please give me a token that I can use to do things through this role in this account. So it's a simple token service is a part of IAM. You get this token back. You can do two things with it. You can either pass it back to the, uh, the customer, and they can use that to make API calls or CLI calls, or you can turn that token into a URL. And that URL can launch the AWS console. But the console was launched only with a constrained set of permissions subject to whatever was defined in that role. So that's a neat approach. And we did that for a long time. But the whole thing with IEM is it ends up being yet another shim. We have yet another system which is managing roles. We have somewhere where we have to go each time someone launches a new product in AWS, someone has to go into those roles and update them and make sure the right things are in there. And that's never going to be as quickly as people want it to be. Uh, it also prevents some automation. There are some use cases with AWS where it's perfectly legitimate for specific tools to create IAM roles directly. Uh, there's a tool called CloudFormer, which is part of CloudFormation, which will provision a bunch of roles and it will sort of hydrate or rehydrate CloudFormation templates. Um, DynamoDB cross-region replication, some of the early tools around that, you had to go and run a thing which would create a specific role. Um, that doesn't work when end users don't have access to create IAM roles directly. So that gets really complicated. Uh, but finally, IAM is a really blunt instrument in this case. IAM will let me do things like say, you can use RDS, but you can't use Redshift. But it can't, doesn't give me the ability to express things like, you can use RDS, but you can only use Aurora and Postgres. Uh, it just doesn't have that level of granularity. And so we realized we needed to think differently about all of this. Um, and that's where we, at this time, things like CloudWatch events and AWS config were starting to come to the fore. We started to think differently. And so the insight we had was, like, what if we stop trying to stop things from happening? What if we just don't do that? And what if we got really, really good at figuring out when something has happened that we care about and responding to that in an automated way? So now we can get out of the way. This is the guardrails and not gates. We can build a bunch of guardrails to detect when things are happening, but we don't have any gates in the way of people who are just trying to get on with their life. Uh, so to do this stuff, you need a lot of automation, of course, uh, especially when you're talking about tens of thousands of accounts. So we got ourselves and built a system called ASAP. ASAP. It's not a fancy acronym. It just stands for as soon as possible. Um, I'm going to explain how that works next. Uh, but the big thing to remember is what we built here, we can only do it because of some of the cool AWS features that have come out recently. Uh, right, so let's dig in. So here's the ASAP world. This is uh, on the left-hand side here. You have an AWS account which belongs to one of our teams, one of the tens of thousands of accounts out there. In every single account, we have CloudTrail turned on. We have AWS config turned on. We have CloudWatch events collecting things from CloudTrail and from its own sources. And all that data gets pushed into an SNS topic, which is attached to that account. 
that SMS topic then gets fed into a central SQS queue which is owned by the central ASAP system. Uh, so all the, all that data feed coming from the tens of thousands of notification topics fed into a central queue. We then have some event dispatches, we have a workflow system, we have some rule evaluations going on. And this is where we look at all the things that we care about and we run our own logic there to look at, okay, so what's going on? Maybe we need to make some calls back into the account to inspect more deeply the state of that account, some different associated resources. Um, and then from there, if we see a rule that gets fired, an evaluation which happens, and someone needs to know about it, then again, we push that out through another SNS notification. And we have a set of external, what we call reactors, uh, Lambda functions potentially, or just systems which are watching those SNS topics. And if they see something that they care about, then they can take action. Um, that might involve cutting a ticket, it might involve taking some automated action, a uh, range of different things. So I'm just going to double click a little bit into the specific AWS features and how they come together to help us uh, build this system. So I know Prashant's sort of given the, the opening pitch about these different systems and how they fit together, but just from our context, AWS config, we think of it as like a, well, I think of it as like a uh, configuration management database for AWS. If you, anyone knows about ITIL and all that stuff, uh, CMDB is this core concept in that world. So it's really, it's a mechanism for collecting an inventory of all the stuff that's in that account. And it's also a mechanism for doing, um, you know, looking for changes, doing drift detection, analyzing what's changed. Uh, so we use it for things like, you know, the security group that an EC2 instance is attached to has changed. Do we care about that? Is that a good thing? Um, or is it something we need to take action on? Uh, an IEM role was changed, so maybe an additional AWS account was added to a trust relationship. We need to look at that AWS account number, make sure it's an account number we know about. If it isn't, maybe someone's typed in the wrong account number by accident, then we should do something about that. Uh, configuration changes to RDS and Redshift clusters. It's the same thing. So config is really good because it gives you not just, hey, something just happened. It also tells you, here's the state of the thing before the change, and here's the state afterwards. Next, you have CloudWatch events. So this is really the, the view of stuff just happened. But it's not just things that users have done. There's also a set of events which are triggered automatically by AWS. And CloudWatch events gives us a feed into those things. So things like when KMS does a key rotation, it will push a CloudWatch event for that, even if that's something that hasn't been done by one of your applications or one of your users. Uh, so it's, you know, there's trusted advisor findings and other things like that also get fed in here. So it's a nice complement to configure, sort of rounds out the set of data that we get. Uh, and it also has its own fully function event framework. You can do custom events, you can do um, scheduled events and things like that. Uh, but we mostly use CloudWatch events as a front end for CloudTrail. CloudTrail is that sort of underlying thing which gives you every single API call which is made in a single account. So that's any user action, that's any application action that's taken place. Um, gives you super broad coverage of AWS features. You know, there's a, pretty much everything is supported by CloudTrail. Um, and so that gives us a nice way of looking at things that happen. Without the integration with CloudWatch events, you have to go into CloudTrail, you have to go and like crawl the, the CloudTrail logs which got pushed into some S3 bucket and figure out what was going on. But the integration with CloudWatch events just gave us a nice clean way of being able to look at what's happening. All right, so a quick example of ASAP in real life. So here's, uh, I guess that's Bob again. Uh, he's creating an RDS instance. If he creates an RDS instance with a single AZ without multi-AZ failover, then this is what it looks like in CloudTrail. This is the JSON which records that event. So you can see the request parameters to the uh, API call and that uh, the multi-AZ is set to false. 
that gets pushed through into CloudWatch events. CloudWatch events publishes an event to the SNS topic that gets fed through. We have a rule in there which is looking for that kind of thing. That gets pushed out to an SNS topic. There's a reactor, the team that owns operational excellence within Amazon. We have a bunch of teams who own different aspects of governance and they have strong opinions on the right way to do things. Um, so they have a set of rules which they've written for some of these things. That reactor can then go and cut a ticket using our internal ticketing system, or it can take whatever other action we deem as appropriate at that point in time. Uh, so the, the person who made that request or the team who made that change will receive that ticket. And if for whatever reason that ticket doesn't get actioned, or if we see that um, violation, if you like, persisting for an extended period of time, then that can be escalated through our ticketing system, and then we can ring in the right folks to make sure that the right attention is paid to that. So what does all this get us? It gives us scalability first and foremost. We have 69 rules today. We have tens of millions of valuations going on every week across those rules, tens of thousands of accounts. So the AWS tools behind all this are super scalable. You know, they can work at our scale, so you should feel confident about that. Um, because we have our own logic behind these rules, we can actually do deeper inspection on the context of that change. So instead of just saying, oh, someone launched an RDS instance, we can go, okay, so what time of day was it? Who was the seniority or the role of the person who made that, who actually took that action? Uh, are there any other events going on elsewhere in the system that we care about that might be correlated to this? And we can actually, you know, have very sort of sophisticated rules that are looking at what's going on. And because we apply these rules across all of our accounts, we don't distinguish between development and production accounts here. So if someone, we use CloudFormation a lot to push out infrastructure changes through pipelines. Um, if someone pushes a change into their development stack, which forces a change in AWS resources, that's gonna fire a rule in their development account, and so the developer's gonna be notified about that super early before anything happens and gets rolled into production. Uh, it also gives us a, an ability to provide rich feedback to people. So instead of just, just being a notification where we can say, oh, you did something wrong, go fix it, we can actually use this as an opportunity to educate people and we can explain what happened, why it happened, and what's the best way to avoid making this mistake next time. Uh, we don't just have engineers using AWS and Amazon. You know, everyone from economists and data analysts and scientists, uh, people who don't necessarily want to or should have to know about the ins and outs of VPC security groups, uh, but they still, we still want to make sure that they're protected and we have the right guardrails around what's going on. So we can encapsulate that event in a nice, simple, easy to understand way so that those people can take action too. Um, other considerations as we built this system, uh, which are important to, to keep in mind, something called anti-entropy checks. This is just a fancy way of saying, um, oh, here's an example. So if I uh, launch an RDS instance with single AZ, that fires an event, it gets fed through to ASAP, it cuts a ticket, but what happens if 10 seconds after I did that, I realized, oh, I made a mistake and then I fixed it. I've still got that ticket flowing through and I'm still getting that false positive. So you wanna avoid that sort of thing. And so an anti-entropy check is just a fancy way of saying, if you get a notification, just maybe wait a little bit or just make another check back into the account to check the current state of that resource, make sure it's still in violation. Um, that way you can filter out a lot of false positives. You have to think about tamper detection too because we're giving everyone access to AWS accounts. We're creating resources in those accounts like SNS topics and we're turning on config and we're turning on CloudWatch events. And in theory, someone could uh, tamper with those resources and turn them off or misconfigure them. And so we need mechanisms to be able to detect that. And so you can do a lot of that with even more ASAP. 
just looking at the CloudTrail uh, API calls that are going through and seeing if any of those calls actually apply to resources which are part of that sort of protected um, stack. Or you can do periodic checks and scans as a sort of backup mechanism. And I'll talk about regular sweeps here too. Uh, exceptions, even if you have the most finely, precisely defined rule, Amazon is so big that there is going to be at least 100 different teams who have a legitimate reason to break that rule. And that's totally fine, but you just need a way to be able to acknowledge that up front and be able to understand that this team is actually allowed to do this, and I'm not going to keep cutting them tickets each time they keep doing the same thing. So you need a sort of back-end workflow to figure that stuff out and make sure that the system actually um, understands that stuff. And then regular sweeps, because ASAP is great at washing a bunch of rules against things that are currently going on. But whenever you build a new rule or whenever you change an existing rule, you probably want to go and do a, a retrospective scan of everything that's already there just to see if there's anything currently in violation. And so you, having the real-time checks is great, but you also need to have a way to, for these rules to be run on a regular triggered basis just to catch anything that fell through the cracks there. So we built ASAP primarily for security. Um, but you may have seen by now it's not actually just about security. There's other reasons uh, for using this sort of mechanism, other sort of governance dimensions, if you like. Uh, availability is one, and operational excellence, so a lot of best practices there. It's nice to have them in a wiki, or it's nice to have them in a document or in training, but it's even better if they're actually codified into a system and we're continuously coaching people about the right way to do things. And you know, our understanding of what a best practice is will continuously evolve as well, and so we want to be able to make sure that those learnings get pushed out really easily. Uh, we want to do it e make it even easier for people to address the problems or the issues that are surfaced with something like ASAP. So getting to a world where instead of just giving everyone the information they need to resolve it, like what's stopping us from providing a one-click fix button that explains what's going to happen, but just gives you the easy option to just make it so. Um, and now, you know, when we built ASAP, things like CloudFormation stack sets and AWS configurals weren't fully out. But now we're looking at these things and we're thinking, you know, well, just in case you're not sure, stack sets is a way of pushing out a CloudFormation template across thousands of accounts through a sort of structured deployment and rollback mechanism. And so we could potentially create a lot of AWS config rules and have stack sets push those rules out across all of those accounts for us. So that's something we're exploring. Um, it's one thing to talk about detecting problems when they happen, but really it's even better if we can try to avoid problems happening in the first place. Now, there's a balancing act here because you don't want to get back into the old way of vetting everything that's happening and stopping problems by slowing people down. But there is an opportunity to make it easier to stay within those guardrails and give people sensible defaults so that they don't have to figure this stuff out on their own and continuously bump against the rails. Um, so there's a couple of other AWS management tools that we use to support that sort of model. CloudFormation is a big one. Um, this really helps us get to this concept of being secure by default. VPCs are a classic one. Um, VPCs are complicated. There's a lot of moving parts there. Network ACLs, security groups, subnets, EIPs, and so on. And so it shouldn't be up to everyone who wants a VPC to figure out what the, the right internal Amazon way to build that VPC looks like. They should just be able to get that VPC provisioned by default. It meets whatever in our security teams and other teams consider to be a good VPC configuration, and it's just there. And as long as you don't tamper with it, then you're golden. Uh, we use that for other things, too. So a simple use case is I want a static website for internal use backed by S3 with CloudFront. Again, we can vend templates which encapsulate the best way that we think 
you should be building those things, and so you can just get them by default. Aurora clusters are another example. Uh, we can also use CloudFormation, and we do use CloudFormation, to provision default resources in the tens of thousands of accounts. So each time we create an account, we make sure that the IAM rules that are needed uh, for all this governance mechanisms to work are in there, that we have the right CloudWatch log groups and config settings. A lot of that stuff can be just pushed out through CloudFormation. And the patching, that's another example of a, a systems tool that we use. It's effectively, everyone knows what patching is, but uh, EC2 Systems Manager is one of those maybe lesser well-known parts of EC2, which is actually pretty awesome. Uh, one of the parts of the Systems Manager is a patch management. So what you can do is you can define patch groups, which is a set of a fleet of hosts that want to be subject to some patching policy. Then you can define baselines and filters to say, for these hosts, I want the operating system. In this case, we've got, you know, for any host running Amazon Linux 2709, I want security fixes to be applied immediately that they're released. And so systems manager can actually take care of that for you. And so you don't have a problem of teams going out of compliance with patching regimes. Uh, so a few takeaways before I hand back to Prashant. Uh, shared accounts have scaling limits. We started with one account. That grew to a massive size. Um, I've explained some of the challenges that we face there, and I think these are common challenges that anyone pursuing that model is going to hit eventually. Uh, we've gone from that to the other extreme, which is lots and lots and lots of small team-owned accounts or application-centric accounts. There is a middle ground, which I want to talk about briefly, and that is taking, going from one account to, I don't know, maybe 20, which is, okay, each department is going to have their own account, and that department are going to do stuff in that account, and they can figure it out. Um, from experience, that doesn't always work out because organizational structures change. They change a lot, uh, more often than you expect. And so each time someone, ownership of some particular product moves into a different department or there's a restructure or some new leader comes in, now you're stuck with this problem of how do I lift and shift these, just those resources out of this account and put them into this account? How do I get all that data copied across and how do I take care of all that? And it's all possible, but it's not really differentiated work. It's kind of painful and it's really not what we should be worried about. And so one of the benefits of moving to lots of small accounts where that account is you know, tightly coupled to this notion of a, an application or a service, a microservice in Amazon's context, those things are long-lived and that entity will persist beyond any organizational changes going on around it. And so it really just becomes a question of, well, who has permissions on these accounts versus what resources belong in these accounts? And that turns out to be a much easier problem to solve. Um, <clears throat> AWS helps people move faster. That's the whole point of AWS. So be very careful when you build governance mechanisms that you're not accidentally getting in the way of that. It may seem viable to start with, but as AWS innovates faster and faster, and as hopefully your own company adopts more and more of the cloud and more and more work goes in there, then um, that can, if you build those mechanisms in the middle, that can turn out to be a scaling bottleneck. Um, and because we are in the cloud and everything is an API and you have a huge suite of products connected with this sort of common um, fabric of CloudTrail, CloudWatch events, and so on, you can actually do things in that world that you couldn't really do a traditional IT. At least I couldn't figure out a way to do it. Um, you can, uh, during Prime Day, we had 419 billion API calls, and we ran rules against every single one of those. And 
have, how would you tackle that when you have maybe you know, an on-premise footprint where you have technology from 12 or 20 different vendors and they're all vending their own log formats and their own, own eventing mechanisms and how do you bring all that together? That's a costly and a complex thing to do, but with something like AWS, it gets much easier for us. Um, and then think about governance as not just a mechanism to keep people doing the right thing, but also as a, a way to educate people and to help them understand what's going on. Like, uh, there's a lot of moving parts when you talk about using AWS, and there's a great opportunity to actually educate and help people understand the context of what they're doing. Um, and finally, if you can, use the same rules within uh, your de development environments that you do in production. Just have the same consistent set of rules everywhere. That means there aren't any nasty surprises when a change actually gets pushed out into production. Uh, and the final point is this old notion of... Um, governance versus agility, and Prashant touched on this, is traditionally we think of it as like an either-or thing. You can have really great governance or you can be really agile, but there's no way to actually get those things to happen at the same time. Uh, there's this phrase, you know, avoid the tyranny of the or and embrace the genius of the and. This is a great example of that. So you can do good governance and you can be really agile uh, with some of the tools that AWS gives us. Um, yeah, so it really... The other thing I wanted to say is it didn't actually take a huge amount of time for us to build this. Uh, it took one of our two pizza teams a couple of months to get this going. We had a, a fully working proof of concept going in a week or two. I mean, this is not something that's super complicated, and I think it's something that other, other people should feel free to, to start building on. So with that, I think I'm going to hand back to Prashant. Thanks, Mike. <coughs> So that, that was very insightful, and this is a journey that Amazon has gone through with our tools, and we take some of the feedback that they give, just like our customers give us, to go and improve these tools. And uh, the really important thing to note is, uh, you know, when, when we launch a new service, uh, Amazon, we always think you know, Amazon will adopt it, but they decide when they're ready to adopt these services. So that's an important insight that Mike, Mike provided in addition to some of the other things. So uh, I, I would like for you to walk away from this with, with some actions you can take from this talk. Uh, the, the first one is, you know, we, we saw two ends of the spectrum, one with a shared account where it is centrally governed with the, and then a distributed one uh, where every team has their own account. You have to pick your governance philosophy. That is very essential because that's dependent on your organization, not based on what others do. And once you pick that, you should also assume just like Amazon.com, it'll evolve over time. And then you can mix and match these sets of management tools to meet that governance philosophy as it evolves over time. As, as Mike said, uh, you know, we launch a lot of services. We launch stack sets to do multi-account uh, provisioning using CloudFormation and config rules. Adopt these services only when you feel comfortable and you're ready to deprecate something you've already built. And given the architecture diagram and the simplicity of what Mike, built, Mike has built, Mike's team has built, um, and, and the amount of time it took, I, I really believe that you can build ASAP or a similar mechanism yourself as well. So keep in mind the cliff notes again. Uh, uh, management tools help you scale your usage of AWS, uh, with, and especially without having to scale people to manage that. Uh, you don't need to trade off visibility and agility. And when in doubt, management tools will provide you better visibility than what you've had on premises or anywhere else. And then pick the right set of primitive tools to manage, uh, to, to meet your governing uh, philosophy. And these are easy to try. So it turns out these management tools are on the internet. So you can go check it out on the cloud. 
And uh, we have a blog post that gives you best practices on how Amazon and some other customers are starting to use these tools. Uh, we have samples such as uh, config rule repositories that their boot camps and other sessions where people are building these sets of rules and customers are sharing their best practices and, uh, as rules in, on GitHub. And these are available on the console as well as API and CLI. So encourage you to try these out and give us feedback. Uh, we have enough time. We'll be happy to take questions offline. We'll hang out here for a few minutes. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.